foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. I'm Marcy Winograd, coordinator of Code Pink Congress, and this is Anti-War Code Pink Radio. We are broadcasting on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, Texas, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Also on other community and college radio stations, as well as Spotify and iTunes. Over a 1,000 faith leaders joined Code Pink, Fellowship for Reconciliation, National Council of Elders, and the Peace in Ukraine Coalition to call on the White House and Congress to support a Christmas truce in Ukraine, noting that a truce at any time would be welcome. Ministers, priests, rabbis, and imams hoped a temporary truce might lead to a negotiated peace settlement. We begin with excerpts from a Christmas Eve sermon delivered by Reverend William Barber of the Repairers of the Breach and the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber live-streamed his Christmas Eve sermon, calling for a truce and ceasefire. In issuing his call, he harked back to Christmas 1914, during World War I, when 100,000 German and British soldiers ceased fire and took part in a brief and spontaneous peace along the Western Front. 108 years ago tonight, on a Christmas Eve in 1914, World War I was in the first months of its beginning. Across the Western Front, a relentless battle raged from trenches. Sometimes only tens of yards separated the troops on the two sides. Young soldiers were crouched in three or four foot high trenches, covered with mud, damp in the best of times, and often soaking wet in the worst of times. They came up out of that muck and mire only to fire at the young soldiers on the other side. Once in a while, they ventured out into what was called no man's land to try to retrieve the bodies of their comrades already dead. By Christmas Eve of 1914, the troops had been stuck in the trenches for six months. And just weeks before, a devastating battle had left 100,000 dead on both the German and the British-French side. The dead soldiers were replaced by reservists and new, mostly generally young recruits. In one 20-mile stretch of the front in western Belgium, British soldiers faced their German counterparts. And this is where, on Christmas Eve, 
108 years ago, a miracle happened. The historian Simon Jones tells us that the German soldiers placed Christmas trees that had been sent to them as gifts on their trench parapets in full view of their enemies with lit candles on those trees. <laughs> Both sides started singing carols in the trenches, in the mud, in the wet. The 133rd Saxton Regiment began to sing Silent Night in German. On the other side, A.C. Ford Highlander later described how he and his fellow soldiers paused to hear the sound of harmonies floating across the no man's land. The Seaforth Highlander tilted his ear and heard a familiar sound even in a different language. Then small groups of soldiers from each side carefully emerged from their trenches. They met up in no man's land and used the bits they knew of each other's language to greet one another. They exchanged small gifts, tobacco, and buttons from their uniform jackets. Without any plan for it, Christmas somehow interrupted the warring madness, if but for a moment. Eventually, the men slipped back to their own sides. Christmas morning dawned and it was foggy, but soon it cleared to a cold, bright day. A British private, Bruce Bond's father, later wrote in his memoir that it was just the sort of day for peace to be declared. It was a Christmas truce. Now the British accounts of this story tend to give the Germans credit for initiating the contract. But many Germans accounts say that the British came out first. Soldiers variously describe the experience as wonderful, the most extraordinary celebration of Christmas that any of us have ever experienced, and one of the most extraordinary sights that anyone has ever seen. Soldiers just stopped fighting. We need a ceasefire in order to make an honest assessment of where we are. As Gandhi once said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And maybe we can see it if we could pause for a moment, count the cost. Because if we can put our weapons down for just one night, then maybe we could put them down for one tomorrow. And if we could put them down for one tomorrow, maybe we could put them down for one week. And if we could put them down for one week, maybe we could put them down for one month. And if we could put them down for one month, maybe we could put them down for one year and study war no more. There comes a time when people of faith must speak, must mourn publicly, cry and offer another way. That's why I accepted the invitation of the Board of Repairs of the Breach as they voted and asked that we would make a clear statement and a call for no war. 
ceasefire in the time of war. Not to speak in a time of war, not to speak in a time of violence, not to speak in a time of oppression is quite frankly theological malpractice. This is no time for playing in the pulpit. We may not know all of the backroom information and war strategies, but what we do know is war kills, war destroys. War can escalate, and if ever it escalates to nuclear war, war could mean annihilation. We commemorate and remember the pray and praise God for Christmas in the midst of the most horrific pandemic realities. We commemorate and remember and praise God for Christmas even as climate change threatens the very survival of our planet. Christmas is not merely a day, it's a holy season. A divine interruption in the status quo. We commemorate and remember and praise God for Christmas knowing that more than 140 million people in this country alone and more than 1.2 billion around the world struggle to survive poverty every day. We commemorate and remember and praise God for Christmas even as some use the language and rituals of our faith to misguidedly endorse and promote the most vile forms of racism, misogyny, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and white nationalism. And this year, like so many years before, we commemorate and remember and praise God for Christmas even as brutal wars rage across the globe from Ukraine to Yemen to Afghanistan to Myanmar to Ethiopia and beyond. Reverend William Barber of Repairers of the Breach and the Poor People's Campaign calling for a Christmas holiday truce in Ukraine where tens of thousands of Ukrainian and Russians have died, millions have been displaced in Ukraine from their homes, and hundreds of thousands have fled Russian conscription. In the days following Christmas, the leaders of both Russia and Ukraine said they were willing to negotiate peace, but set down onerous preconditions. Prosecution of Russian war crimes, recognition of Russian annexed territory in the Donbass, preconditions that made peace negotiations less likely. Reverend Barber delivered his sermon days after Ukraine President Zelensky flew to the nation's capital to ask Congress to approve billions more for weapons for Ukraine. Hello, I'm John Dickerson. Welcome to CBS News Prime Time. Against all odds, that's how Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky described his people's fight for freedom. The United States Congress welcomed Zelensky with a two-minute standing ovation on the House floor. He called on Congress to continue aiding Ukraine in their battle and thanked all Americans for their ongoing support. Against all odds and doom and gloom, Scenarios Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Following Zelensky's address and the unfurling of a Ukrainian battlefield flag, Congress passed a $1.7 trillion spending bill, which included $858 billion for military spending, half for war profiteers. 
while millions in this country drown in debt, live paycheck to paycheck, suffer food insecurity, and lack access to clean air and water. Folded into this omnibus spending bill was another $47 billion for the war in Ukraine, an estimated half of that filling the coffers of for-profit military contractors churning out the weapons for Ukraine. All of this with no end in sight and no military solution to the crisis. Hey, it's not just me or Code Pink saying that this war cannot be resolved on the battlefield. That's the position of Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who has called for urgent diplomatic efforts. For analysis of this war, provoked by the United States intervention and NATO expansion, we turn to former U.S. Congressman Dennis Kucinich. The congressman from Ohio spoke on a Roots Action webinar entitled Ending the War in Ukraine, Not Life on Earth. Here's activist Hania Jodat introducing the former presidential candidate. It brings me nothing but great pleasure to introduce um, our next guest, um, Dennis Kucinich, who was elected to Cleveland City Council in 1969 and then elected mayor in 1977. The youngest person elected mayor of a large city in the United States. Congratulations on that. In 1996, Dennis was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives for Ohio's 10th Congressional District, where he served for 16 years, during which he was the leading Congress member on issues of peace and ending war, including leading efforts to prevent and then to end the war on Iraq. Dennis campaigned for U.S. presidential in 2004 and 2008. Thank you for your services, and please take it away. Okay. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Well, thank you for um, emceeing this important forum. And to all those of you who are on this call who I've worked with uh, uh, throughout the years, thank you for your unstinting efforts and your endless commitment to uh, not just peace, but to um, a just world, which we don't have right now. You know, I'd just like to recap uh, some of the work that we've done together over the years, because uh, with the help of many on this call, I was able to organize and lead the effort in Congress uh, against uh, the war in Iraq. Uh, but even before that, uh, challenging the rationale for the uh, U.S. Uh, participation with NATO in the bombing of, uh, of, Ser of uh, Serbia and that war in the Balkans. Uh, challenged the, the U.S. Uh, and its policies with respect to uh, attempt to build up a, a military action against Iran. At one point, they were actually talking about dropping nuclear bunker busters on several uh, facilities in Iran. Uh, and also uh, calling the government to account for its uh, conduct of a war against Libya. Uh, and then you go on to the games that were played where the U.S. was funding al-Qaeda in warring against um, uh, Syria. Uh, and then there's the votes that I, with your help, forced in the House of Representatives on a number of, of key issues, including uh, votes to attempt to end the war in Afghanistan. Uh, you know, after, um, after my first six months in Congress, where I really, you know, got a feeling for the racket that was going on with respect to uh, Pentagon spending and and setting the stage for endless wars. From that point on until the time I left Congress in uh, 2013, 
any opportunity I had to vote against a Pentagon budget or military spending, I voted against it. Uh, and I'm proud of that because I understand the, the game that was being played with the American people, uh, the categorical lies that were told, the uh, the waste of life, the, the waste of, of trillions of dollars, the distortion of the purpose of our government, the distortion of our purpose of nationhood itself. And it, this has all been beyond immoral. And when we, when we look at the recitation of events that has uh, brought us into, uh, into this uh, proxy war uh, with Russia, uh, where you, the people of Ukraine are just pawns in a bloody chess game, uh, we, we understand, once again, the lies that are being told, the manipulation through the media, the uh, uh, attempt to uh, make this some kind of a phony cause of, 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 of U.S. Uh, purpose in the world. And, you know, actually, for those of you who have, who have looked at it, our national security strategy basically spells out not only that we're going to hold the Russian check, but the plan is to, once that's done, to pivot to China. And China knows this. And right now, what we have done is blundered into a, uh, an almost a civilizational conflict where uh, uh, not only Russia and China, but you can look at all the BRICS nations, the, you know, including Brazil and India and uh, um, South Africa and now Saudi Arabia and other countries are starting to look at the U.S. policies and practices in this attempt to maintain an American imperium and are turning away, and they're turning away to form their own trading blocks, are turning away to form their own, um, uh, uh, the primacy of their own cur currency with respect to energy uh, uh, purchases, and are, um, are basically looking uh, uh, back uh, towards uh, the West with contempt. And, and this, uh, this escapade that the US started by overthrowing the government of Ukraine in 2014, uh, has will prove to be, I think, a, a pivotal point in uh, in world history, where the United States uh, joins uh, uh, the historical uh, uh, role, uh, role role call of nations involved in a march of folly, because we have overplayed the game of imperialism. We are no longer going to uh, be able to uh, uh, establish. Uh, any kind of hegemony in the world. That game's over. The allies that we have had in Europe are learning the cost of U.S., um, uh, of, of loyalty to the U.S. Uh, military initiatives because it's Europe right now that is paying a cost in terms of higher energy, lack of access to energy, political instability, and, um, and they're doing it not only with respect to Russia, they're about to be forced in the same role with respect to China. So, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we can ask why and we need to ask why. Uh, those of us who are familiar with the project for the New American Century have to recognize that that project has never died, that it is alive today, and that uh, the neocons that are in the State Department are using a weak president who uh, is easily manipulated, and uh, that together with the role of the Western media in, in putting out a, a false narrative uh, has helped to uh, um, has helped to build the ignorance of the public uh, as to what actually is going on. But people do know something's going on because it's the amount of money that's being spent. Uh, you know, right now, uh, the Pentagon budget for the, for 2023 is $761 billion. 
That's a $33 billion increase over what was asked for previously. The Intel budget is $67 billion. The State Department budget is $60 billion. The money that will have gone to Ukraine over the past year will soon reach close to $100 billion with a more recent request of, of President Biden for an additional $37 billion for, for Ukraine. So we're looking at close to a trillion dollars in a period of a year spent for what? To try to uh, place the American dreams, ambitions, hopes, and, and desires of a, of, a, of a country of you know, over 340 million people on the altar of, of, of contemptuous war and to, um, and to drag Europe in to it and to use the sock puppet of NATO as some kind of a, uh, of a legitimate uh, force, which it's not, uh, which it's an anachronism that ought to be dissolved. Uh, but, you know, we, we have classic bungling, historical miscalculation, uh, and, and what we're looking at here, the upshot of it is, I think, uh, we see it, less reliance on diplomacy, uh, more money for the military. Uh, they can't even keep track of the money they're sending over there. They admit that they cannot keep track of the money that's being sent over to Ukraine. And I think that's a point of entry to stir the American people's awareness. Uh, they... Um, it's actually a weakening of the U.S. economy that's resulting uh, higher uh, uh, higher costs for fuel. They've wrecked the green uh, our ambitions for a green economy. Uh, they have isolated uh, the um, um, they're they're isolating the United States from from a good part of the world, and it it the upshot's going to be the destruction, I think, of the EU community. Uh, eventually, uh, the cessation of NATO, which, you know, isn't a bad thing. Uh, the Democratic Party uh, is no longer a, uh, a force for uh, peace and justice when it comes to these matters, because they're in lockstep all the way, uh, and even consider it a form of uh, political advantage at this point to be prosecuting uh, this war against Russia. Uh, you know, nothing I say is meant to excuse anything that Russia's done. So, you know, for those of who who may be interested in, in what my position is on that. You know, we don't excuse Russia, but we do not, we're not Russians, we're Americans. And we have a responsibility to call our own government to, to account, and that's not happening. So, you know, I, I think that as the war grinds on, uh, this meetings like this become very important because we have an opportunity to try to set our country right. The odds become longer, frankly, every day. Uh, but it's only those of us who will hold that 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 flame of hope and, and, and social and economic justice who will take a stand, who will stand up and speak out, and who, who will push back against this, uh, this growing gloom and doom, which is being visited upon the, the, the reality and the psyche of our nation and the world. So um, thank you very much for the chance to uh, make a few remarks, and I'll certainly be open to any further discussion or to any questions. Thank you. Former U.S. Congressman Dennis Kucinich on the urgency of reaching a negotiated peace in Ukraine and using our influence to pressure our representatives in Congress to stop funding endless war. This is the core message of the Peace in Ukraine Coalition. Ceasefire, diplomacy, no more weapons to fan the flames of war or fuel the fiction that there is a military solution. Code Pink launched the Peace in Ukraine Coalition almost a year ago, after the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, eight years after the U.S. began arming a civil war in eastern Ukraine, undermining the peace 
Accord signed in Minsk, Belarus. Our coalition now includes over 100 organizations, among them Veterans for Peace, World Beyond War, DSA International, Roots Action, Progressive Democrats of America, the People's Party, and others. From January 13th through the 27th, the Peace in Ukraine Coalition will promote Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy of peace and nonviolence. With Peace in Ukraine, weeks of action to stop this war. We're calling for diplomacy, not weapons, street vigils, congressional office protests, marches to the offices of the corporate press, a webinar to embrace Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy of peace, and teach-ins to discuss the book War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict by Medea Benjamin and Nicholas Davies. Then on February 15th, we will rage against the war machine in Washington, D.C. Stay tuned for more on that. And to learn more about our Peace in Ukraine coalition, our actions, visit peaceinukraine.org. I'm Marcy Winograd on Code Pink Radio. Coming up, the anti-war movement in Russia. Who is leading it? What are the demands? First, a song from the beloved Phil Oaks. I'll dedicate it to all the nice folks in NATO. Oh, I marched to the Battle of New Orleans At the end of the early British wars The young land started growing The young blood started flowing But I ain't marching anymore For I killed my share of engines In a thousand different fights I was there at the little big farm I heard many men lying I saw many more die, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars. It's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I stole California from the Mexican land. Fought in the bloody civil war Yes, I even killed my brothers And so many others But I ain't marching anymore For I marched to the battles of the German trench In a war that was bound to end all wars Oh, I must have killed a million men now they want me back again, but I ain't a marching anymore. It's always the old to lead us to the wars. It's always the young to fall. Now look at all we've won with the saber and the gun. Tell me, is it worth it all? For I flew the final mission in the Japanese sky. Set off the mighty mushroom roar When I saw the cities burning I knew that I was learning That I ain't a-marching anymore Now the labor leaders screaming When they close a missile plant United Fruit screams at the Cuban shore Call it peace or call it treason Call it love or call it reason But I ain't a-marching anymore oh, I ain't a-marching anymore Welcome back to Code Pink Radio, where we will now turn to a webinar entitled Russia and Europe, 
the Ukraine war and possibilities for Euro-Atlantic peace. Massachusetts Peace Action and New York Peace Action sponsored the event, featuring host peace activist Joseph Gerson and special guest Reiner Braun, former executive director of the International Peace Bureau in Germany. Braun visited Moscow from November 22nd through the 29th, meeting with those inside the Kremlin elite, as well as scientists, academics, and mothers against war. Here's Reiner Braun. The biggest network of anti-war activities are the Feminist Woman Against the Wall. This is a network of about 1,500 to 2,000 women all over Russia, which in different cities are organizing protests against the war. In the big cities, you have the opposition of the war by individuals, small anti-war groups, and the radical political left left to the Communist Party. The Communist Party in its majority is one of the biggest supporters of Putin and the war. There's only a minority in the Communist Party which is against the war. When you are looking to the more governmental oriented institutions like Academy of Sciences, like Lomonosov University, you can feel the opposition against the war, but you cannot see really protest against the war. In the academy, they are discussing and planning new peace architecture structures for Europe. But both institutions or the people of both institutions which I met are saying that a ceasefire and the step for negotiations is absolutely important. Negotiation is a key point where many are thinking this could be a way out of the out of this difficult situation. When you ask me, is the opposition strong enough for a regime change or for a change of the government or the elites, I can easily say no. The opposition is a little bit an internal opposition in the elites, and there is a small opposition in the society, but they are absolutely not strong enough for bigger changes in the society. The elites are more or less united in support of the economic development of the country. And economically, Russia has problems with high tech technologies, problems with the newest development of the computer systems, high technology, electronic, and others. But many parts of the society, the economy is working quite normal. The agriculture system is totally autark. The products of grapes were rising. It is the biggest number of grapes they gave, get, got this year. So the economic situation is even better than it was in the beginning. The ruble is quite stable. It's much more stable than two years ago. Now it is related to Euro, it is one to 58. It was two years ago, one Euro to 78 ruble. So this is much better. There is, this is quite constant and it's, there is no sign that the society will break down. The export of oil and gas is expanding above all to Asian countries. Russia have new, new gas and oil agreements with India, Philippines, Malaysia, 
China. The, pro the trade to India is growing by 300% in the last months. So they have a lot of hard currency for the next steps of the economic development. And the end of the trade to the Western countries leads to a situation that the autark key in the countries is growing. More and more parts of the society are autark and don't need, in, they don't need foreign trade. The biggest problem is the high technology development. That is the biggest problem. Computer scientists and everything connect, collect, connected to these questions. What are the people thinking about the way out of the crisis? I think there is no so much difference to our discussion about the Vatican plan and others. Everyone believes that the situation in Ukraine can only be solved by a neutral Ukraine. Ukraine cannot join NATO by discussing about a new autonomy status of Donetsk and Lugansk. This is a very critical discussion after the reunification of these, uh, of the unification of these parts of form of Ukraine with Russia. So this new Russian legal system and the development of a peace plan makes it not easy, but there is definitely possible for some solutions. Some of our leading figures like Jeffrey Sachs and von Schulenburg, the diplomats have developed some suggestions to this. So there are possibilities to solve these problem and uh, to come to an agreement for a ceasefire. Everything, and I would like to underline this, and you know, I think I mentioned no names. The repression to the opposition, to the radical left, to the peace groups, to the anti-war activists is really high. All offices of the foundations, including the offices of the left organizations are closed. And people are staying in a quite strong control. The system of foreign agents is advanced, and everyone who is, has critical voices or is, has a critical opinion can be punished as foreign agent. We can even see this by some of our friends, which whom we are working in IPB together. They even they they have a lot of problems. So that is also a big big problem and. So what are the consequences for me and maybe also for the peace movement? And then maybe I speak the five, last five minutes of the peace movement. I think when I'm speaking about the differences in the peace movement, there is no big difference between the opinions in the United States and in Germany. We have different opinions, what some people are calling sanctions, what other people are calling um, economic war. We have smaller differences, but we are overcoming these differences in the questions of weapons export to Turkey, to uh, Ukraine. We had a big peace annual peace meeting of the German peace movement over the weekend, and it is united in the points, no, no sanctions, no weapons to Ukraine, ceasefire negotiations, and a new peace architecture for Europe, which includes disarmament, arms control, and new forms of cooperation, and the agreement, and everyone agreed that the European security system is only possible with Russia and not without 
Russia. So that is, and the problem of the peace movement is, for my understanding, not the lack of common positions. I think we have more in common that is divided us. The biggest problem is that we are not able up to now for a mass mobilization. We are able to, to mobilize for actions, even bigger actions, but this is not really a mass mobilization. And our discussion from the weekend said the key challenge for the next year is really to develop a broader opposition against the war for common security. Common security and the philosophy of common security is the agreed point for all parts of the German peace movement. And we have our first actions in the beginning of February, in the mid of February, when this Munich security conference will happen again. And we agreed to organize a big demonstration around this Munich security conference. And definitely we will have big actions over Eastern, we are coming back to more and bigger traditional Easter marches. Maybe some, these are my words of, in the beginning as introduction, and I'm happy to answer questions when I can. Thank you. Thank you, Reiner. Um, it was very helpful. I mean, here in the United States, we, 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 we really don't get a, a clear picture of what's happening inside of Russia. So this is a very, very helpful. Let me ask two questions, and then we'll go to, to Q&A. Uh, the first is, um, uh, you know, throughout the, the, the fall and earlier in the summer, uh, you know, we were hearing, uh, you know, somewhat panicked reports uh, about what energy and heating supplies in Europe would be and what their consequences would be uh, for the war. I wonder if you can tell us what, what, the, what, what the energy uh, and, and, uh, and winter looks like uh, in, in Europe. It's cold in Europe. <laughs> And, you know, we have big problems. Above all people, the poor people and the people which are living with limited conditions in their day-to-day -day life, they have big problems for surviving, for getting enough food, for heating their houses, and for surviving over the months. The inflation and the cost for food and for the daily needs is rising definitely more than 10%. And... This creates a lot of problems. You can see on the streets more people without housing. You can hear when you discuss this in, this in the subway or the bus that people are deeply concerned if they can pay the next bill for their rent and the so-called second rent, the social costs. This is really a big problem for 50 to 60% of our German people which are living mainly under conditions that they can survive, not really bad, but they don't have really reserves. When you don't have reserves, you have big problems to pay all the bills. So this is, we have an atmosphere here that we have a reduction of going shopping before Christmas, which is the most important time for shopping in Germany. This reduced dramatically this year. And this has consequences for the whole industry, for the whole production system in our country. So we are really concerned about the future. We are concerned about the prices for gas and oil. And it is an atmosphere in the country that people really don't know what will, be, what will happen in the future. So it's not a good atmosphere, but it is not an atmosphere of opposition. We have not a broad, broad opposition in the society, which you can see day to day 
in the streets. The only opposition in the street, and this is quite big, is in East Germany. In East Germany, we have protest demonstrations in the smaller cities where 20%, even 30 or 35% of the population of the city are joining the demonstrations. These are big actions. We don't have them in West Germany and the rest, and we don't have them in the big cities, but we have them in the East part of Germany. And we are all waiting what, is, what will happen in the future. Everyone is really looking from day to day what will happen in the future. And what I'm saying to Germany, I think you can generalize this for Western and also for Southern Europe. We have quite all the same problems. That was Rainer Braun of the International Peace Bureau sharing his impressions of what life was like in Russia during his week-long trip in November. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Radio on prospects for peace in Ukraine. Now we turn to University of Rhode Island professor Dr. Nikolai Petro, who served as a policy advisor in the State Department under H.W. Bush and as a temporary attache in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Dr. Petro is the author of a new book entitled The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us about conflict resolution? So first of all, uh, history offers comfort, I think, in that regard. Um, So many historical conflicts were deemed irresolvable. Um, Germany and France, for example, it, it was the conventional wisdom that two great powers uh, would always be competing, including involved in military conflict in the middle of Europe, sadly, because of their geographical proximity. Uh, similarly, uh, England and France, or take the bloody history of uh, Ireland uh, and uh, the United Kingdom, not to focus on the United Kingdom, obviously. We have our own bloody history uh, in the West with Mexico. I Mex- Mexico, uh, you know, has suffered from uh, American uh, colonial depredations for a very long time. And since 1840, uh, since 1840, when we seized half its territory, uh, we've invaded 10 times since then. And where are we today? Americans go retire in Mexico. (laughs) Uh, Now, I'm not saying everything's honky-dory, but I'm saying life moves on And that is quite natural because whatever, and again, I'm not old enough to have have known World War II, but certainly my parents did. And as a young child, I, having grown growing up in in Europe, we visited Holland and my uh, older relatives, German relatives, they were older Dutch people who would refuse to speak to them because somehow in their mind, they had been involved in World War II. But of course, the young people that I was hanging out with in Holland didn't have that problem with me. And uh, so this is thankfully, thankfully people have short memories and time helps us to forget. And that is the lesson here. The lesson of classical Greek tragedy uh, is that um, is one of partly forgetting. So what I do in my book is I look at three examples of 
uh, societies that have been torn by warfare. And it turns out that although we can't recreate the social therapy that the Greeks had, we do have something similar. We've come up with something similar already in what are called a truth and reconciliation commissions. And these have been around for more than 45 years and implemented in more than 50 countries. And I talk specifically about three examples that I think uh, could be useful for Ukraine, South Africa, Guatemala, and Spain. And I can go very quickly about what the main points are in each of those. In South Africa, the Anglican Church, and specifically Archbishop Desmond Tutu, played a key role in transforming a situation fraught with the potential for violent retribution after the end of apartheid into one of forgiveness and healing. In Guatemala, uh, again, a 34-year civil war with massive American involvement to try to uh, prevent the country from going communist, in that uh, country, the commission helped to promote a national discussion of the country's history of genocide over the military government's reluctance. And in Spain, there was actually a pact among the country's political parties to literally forget the past. It's called the Pacto de Olvido, provided, and this pact provided enough time for democratic institutions to emerge. Literally two decades were needed for that. And these eventually gave birth to a civil society that could re-examine the past in a new and more constructive social context. And so this is a process that is ongoing that will involve multiple generations. And I think it is an essential part of the healing that, uh, an under, uh, that, that, that is necessary for society, namely the ability to see one's former enemies as co-citizens. I hope you're right. I hope you're right. Yeah, we, we definitely need to look far into the future and imagine a time when we will transcend the, the current hostilities. And, there actually and, were groups before 2022 that had begun that process. However, they were already uh, being uh, constrained by the far right and the nationalist groups in Ukraine in 2021. But um, it just suggests to me that there will always be people in Ukraine who, who will reach out and try to establish and seek to establish a reconciliation between West and East and North and South. And that that will have to be done with a recognition of the diversity that Ukrainians, that, that really forms the glory of uh, Ukrainian society. It's nothing to be feared, I think. And uh, that would all be to the good for social healing. I know you worked in the State Department under the first George Bush. Uh, you were around you know, in the decades that uh, followed the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So what happened with the emergence of the nation state in Ukraine as an independent nation state? I, I know you've talked about regionalism versus nationalism. 
do you see this as an internal conflict that has never been resolved? Yes, yes. And it goes back much longer than the 30 years of Ukrainian independence. There has always been a constituency in Ukraine that uh, has sought to establish a nation state. Um, and this constituency has historically been strongest in the westernmost regions. And as a result, that particular aspect of Ukrainian nationhood, the Galician version of Ukrainian identity, has been touted as the ideal. Unfortunately for the rest of the country, it is um, a conception of history and identity which is not widely shared outside of the westernmost region. And so one of the consistent sources of tension has been over which version of Ukrainian identity is the correct one and does it need how to impose it essentially, because the differences between the Russophile East and the Russophobic West are so intense on this matter that uh, they're, well, they've led to uh, armed conflict uh, in the country four times over the last century in conjunction with foreign invasions, uh, just like this one, <laughs> just, like, just like the last one but they include the Civil War, the World War I, World War II, and at each time this debate uh, they, was attempted to be settled by constituents in different regions, but it, it always failed. And one of the reasons I think, uh, or the fundamental reason, is that there is an attempt to impose one monolithic version of national identity over a country that is very diverse. And if you listen, read historians, listen to uh, Ukrainian politicians over time, uh, they've all recognized the diversity of the country and urged some sort of ability to have a state that would recognize this diversity and even allow it to thrive. Because there are lots of societies in the world, lots of nation states with even greater diversity and allowing multiple languages. The problem is that Ukrainians in the East, the Eastern half of the country uh, have, so, have had so much uh, sympathy or let's say closeness with Russia that for the Western Ukrainians, that identity is too close for comfort. And they therefore see the only solution as eradicating that sentiment. But in the process of eradicating the sentiment, they're winding up eradicating the people too. At least that's been one sub-theme of Ukrainian uh, history, especially recent history since 2014. And that has led uh, to an intensification of the internal divisions. I'm speaking with Dr. Petro, who teaches international politics, comparative politics at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, Dr. Petro, uh, you're talking about an internal conflict that has never been resolved, that has led to an external conflict. Let's bring up, let's, let's take us to the present. You know, uh, recently Putin said, okay, I'm ready to negotiate. <clears throat> Excuse me, we have annexed the Donbass. 
I don't think he wants to negotiate that. Uh, Zelensky says, okay, yes, I am ready to negotiate peace, but first I want to ensure that these negotiations are going to uh, lead to the prosecution of Russian war crimes and that they will be held in the United States. So if anyone doubted that this was a proxy war, all I would say is look at his own words, right? Why does this have to be in the United States? Okay, so with this internal conflict that you described and with the external conflict of the Russian invasion, how do we ever find ourselves out of this morass? No, no military conflict lasts forever. And it concludes when in practical terms, the parties come to a mutual understanding that there's nothing more to be gained for them in the current military process. So the military process, in fact, transitions to a negotiation process. But it, I, I emphasize that the realization that there's nothing more to be gained has to be achieved first. And no political leader is going to tell us that, oh, I get it now, I'm not gonna win. They're just going to do it. <laughs> and then we're going to see progress. You've been listening to Dr. Nikolai Petro, former State Department policy advisor, professor of international politics, and author of the new book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution. I'd like to thank Dr. Petro and our other speakers, Reverend William Barber of the Repairers of the Breach, former Congressman Dennis Kucinich, and Reiner Braun of the International Peace Bureau. I'm Marcy Winograd for Code Pink Anti-War Radio. Learn more about our campaigns at codepink.org. And visit the Peace in Ukraine Coalition at peaceinukraine.org. Thank you for joining us on Code Pink Radio. Peace. You think they're foes, they're in business together Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink